Thanks for listening to the Grace First Podcast. If you want to know more about us, head on over to gracefirst.church. Or if you're in the Wichita area, come visit us. Sundays at 1015. Well, what do you say when you have nothing to say? There are times in life when you may be left speechless. It may be that awkward moment when you come to a group and say hi and everybody leaves. Or maybe that moment when you go to check under the bed for monsters for that strange noise and you realize you're 30 years old. (laughs) Or when you say something funny and you laugh at your own jokes but nobody else is laughing. Well, there are some of these, these are some of the funnier moments in life when we are left speechless. But there are also times and situations in life that are far more serious. When you witness a public humiliation or a public shame, you may be at a loss for words to ease that tension in that situation. Or when someone shares the news of a terminal illness like cancer with you, you may be left speechless. Or when you hear of a tragic death of a family member or a friend, what can you possibly say to help them feel better? I have attended several funerals in my life where the deceased person was not a Christian. And one funeral I attended was during my college years, and it was a funeral of a a friend of mine. And he was not a Christian by any means. But what I heard most frequently at that funeral were these kind of comments. He's in a better place now. He is not suffering anymore. Or that he's resting in peace in heaven. Now, I understand the sentiment here by those who are giving these comments. The weight of the emotional pain is heavy for the loved ones that are left behind. And the guests naturally want to say something to make that situation a little better. They were trying to give the family some kind of hope. But sadly, what was happening was that the people were receiving false hope. The truth is, we don't know if he's in a better place. Or we don't know that he is resting in peace in heaven. You may have heard similar comments in similar situations. As believers who know the truth of salvation in Christ, we cannot be abrasive in how we share the gospel truth, but we also cannot give them false hope. It's one of the worst things you can do when someone truly needs hope. So what then is a hope that we can share with those who are suffering and are experiencing these emotional anguish. Well, we're going to see what this hope is through Jesus' response this morning. It's the greatest hope that we have here on earth. But it's the hope that every dying soul needs to hear. That is the hope of the reality of the resurrection life with Jesus. As we continue our study in Mark this morning... We saw last week that the first series of attacks came from the Sanhedrin in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. And if you remember what the Sanhedrin was, they were the buffer organization between Rome and Israel. It was composed of 71 members of the chief priests, the ruling elders and scribes, these including the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. Last week, we saw that the Pharisees and the Herodians... Uh, They try to trap Jesus with questions about taxes. But we also saw one of the greatest comebacks in the history of the world through Jesus' response. Well, this morning, we're going to see the round two of their attacks. 
And this time, the delegates say send are the Sadducees. We're going to see in our passage, first, the Sadducees' trap, and then second, we'll see Jesus' correction of their response. From Jesus' response, we'll then apply the truth that he revealed to us as we explore in depth why the resurrection is the greatest hope that every dying soul needs to hear, and how we can share this hope with the world that is in need. So turn with me to Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 18. Mark chapter 12. And we're going to read just one verse in uh, verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. So here we have the Sadducees. And this verse gives us an important clue as to what they believed or what they didn't believe. That is, they didn't believe in the resurrection. So who were these Jewish ruling elders who didn't, who, who didn't believe in this biblical concept like the resurrection? I mean, we read from our passage earlier, uh, Sean read for us from Daniel chapter 12 of this resurrection concept, right, in our call to worship. Well, the Sadducees were an interesting group. When you think of the bad guys in the Bible, who do you think of? You know, I, you know, from my Sunday school days, I think of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay? Scribes really weren't a thing, but definitely I remember the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were described in history as upper class and aloof, associated with the Jewish priestly aristocracy and temple leadership. They were essentially the rich politicians. They were so conservative in their Bible reading that they became super liberal in their theology, if you can imagine that. Let me unpack that for you a little bit. There's a pastor today, uh, his name in, uh, he's a pastor in Georgia by the name of Andy Stanley. Maybe many of you are familiar with him, and uh, certainly many of you are familiar with his father, Charles Stanley, whom you may have seen on TV. But Andy Stanley said something about five years ago uh, to the effect of, We need to prioritize Jesus' resurrection. So we need to, in some sense, unhitch from the Old Testament. You see, he was trying to really emphasize and conserve the resurrection of Christ. But his emphasis without the rest of the scripture, like the Old Testament, has resulted in leading to theological liberalism. This is what was going on with the Sadducees. Their particular emphasis on the Torah resulted in minimizing the authority of the rest of the scripture and eventually led to their theological liberalism. At the heart of their view, they rejected the more recent oral traditions and they gave primacy only to the five first books of the Torah. So if you were quoting prophets like Daniel, Jeremiah, Hosea, uh, those verses had less authority to them than the scripture from Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But since they rejected the authority of the other books, along with the developed theology of the Old Testament, they rejected several biblical concepts. While the Pharisees believed in God's divine sovereignty, the Sadducees believed in free, human free will alone. Okay, while the Pharisees believed in angels, demons, and the resurrection, the Sadducees outright rejected these concepts. And they had very different political stance than the Pharisees. 
The Sadducees were more pro-Rome, and the Pharisees were uh, anti-Rome. And this is because the Sadducees were rich and they were comfortable. So when it came to the belief in the resurrection, which were developed from passages like Enoch, prophet Elijah, uh, and the prophets like Daniel, the Sadducees rejected these beliefs. Now, let's look at their trap. Join me in verse 19. Verses 19 through 23, this is what we read. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? So here we see the Sadducees trap. This is your first point on the outline if you're following along uh, on your, in your bulletin. But remember that they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe, and so the rest of the Old, uh, Old Testament outside of the Torah and what God revealed through the prophets and the kings had little to no bearing on what they believed. So really, they were asking this question out of theological ignorance. This is a hypothetical question that is really bogus. The question they ask essentially deals with a a woman who has had multiple wives, or multiple husbands, excuse me, here on earth in this life. And when they go to heaven, who will be her husband? Now, under this devious trapping question, there is a real personal concern that many of you may be wondering about. And if you, that is if you've had multiple spouse in your lifetime. Uh, if you were widowed and remarried, widowed again possibly and remarried, this is a genuine question. And that question is, well, what will my marital status be like in heaven? Where I want to spend the bulk of our time together is not in the, the Sadducees' question, but actually in Jesus' response. So let's uh, join me in verse 24. Let's look at his response. Jesus replied, Are you not in error? I want you to circle that word. Are you not in error because you do not know the Scripture or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Now we see Jesus' correction, and this is our second point, and this is where we will spend the most of our time. The way Jesus corrects their error is structured in a sandwiched format. His correction about their ignorance on the power of God and the Scripture is sandwiched between his twice-stated rebuke. In verse 24, he tells them that they are wrong. And then in verse 27, he tells them again that they are really wrong. Essentially, here's how Jesus' rebuke looks like. He says, I'm going to tell you that you're wrong, and then I'm going to tell you why you're wrong, and then I'm going to tell you again that you're really wrong. So what caused them to be wrong? 
When I was in elementary school, many of you learned this too. I learned about the planets in our solar system. Okay, the word planet means a wandering body. Okay, it comes from the Greek word uh, planao to mean wandering off. Okay? Now, back in the 90s, just like most of you, I learned that Pluto was a planet in our solar system. But apparently, this is no longer the case as of 2006. You know, Pluto is still orbiting the sun, but it doesn't meet all the requirements based on certain scientific definitions. Some of you would agree with me when I say that I think we had high hopes for Pluto. But according to the definitions of modern science, I'm afraid Pluto has wandered off. It has strayed off, not necessarily orbitally, but categorically in modern science. Well, I bring that up, I bring up this concept of planet Pluto because like Pluto, the Sadducees wandered off and deviated off of God's path. The Greek word for error and mistaken that you saw in verse 24 and 27 is the same word, planao, for planet that describes their wandering off course and deviating from the truth. The Sadducees were like Pluto in that sense, in that they wandered off course from the truth of God. Why? Well, verse 24 tells us, because they didn't know the, God, uh, the word of God. They didn't know the scripture and his power. So then if the hypothetical woman in question here rises from the dead, what will her life look like? And for those of you who are widowed and later remarried, what will your marital status be like in heaven? Jesus gives us an answer to that. But many believers who have found great joy and delight in their marriage here on earth find his answer a little bit troubling. And of course, there are those who will say that, you know, you won't be seeing much of me in heaven because I'll be out with Jesus. Well, what did Jesus mean by this? Well, Jesus' response first begins with an affirmation to the resurrection. The resurrection of believers is not an if, but it's a when. His response is a confirmation of the resurrection to life with God for all believers. See, it says when the dead rise. It's not an if, it's when the dead rise. Now, they are mistaken in their understanding of the power of God because in their ignorance, heaven was just a continuation of the earthly life. But in the resurrection, our new life in the new heaven and the new earth is going to be drastically different. For us to think that heaven will be a place of a, a mere improved earthly life is to undermine the power of God. You know, when I was a young bachelor in Hawaii, my pastor in Hawaii would say, Maranatha, come, Jesus, come. And the idea was a proclamation of our expect and await uh, for his second, second coming or of Jesus' return. Now, when I would hang out with other single Christian guys, uh, we used to joke about this phrase. And we would say that, you know, if Jesus waited, maybe just until after my wedding, uh, that would be okay. okay that, that we would be okay with that. And the idea was that we could experience a blissful experience of marriage, including consummation, which is sex. We would say, come, Lord Jesus, come. But if it's at all possible, 
please come after my wedding. But your will be done, but not mine. Well, the sentiment that was expressed here, even though it's kind of funny, it's similar to the worries that some married couples have about their marriage in their resurrected life. At the heart of this concern is that the most blissful and joyful experiences known to us here on earth will not be available to us in heaven. But you see, our earthly experience is insufficient to explain the resurrection life. See, God has kept hidden most of what is to be experienced in heaven. Though there are no marriages in heaven, we can safely assume that all relationships in God's presence will be overwhelmingly deeper than even our marital relationships we experience here on earth. In other words, our relationships with our friends, family, our spouse in heaven will be more intimate and not less. I like what James Edwards said about this. And I put this in your bulletin for you to read later on. It says, present earthly experience is entirely insufficient to forecast divine heavenly realities. We can no more imagine heavenly existence than an infant in, in utero can imagine a Beethoven piano concerto or the Grand Canyon at sunset. See, we can get a glimpse of what heaven is like through the Bible as we lift the edge of the curtain to heaven through the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. But most of what heaven will be like in the resurrection is veiled for us. What we do know is that it will be way better than even the most pleasurable experience that is known to us here on earth because we will be directly with Jesus who is the source of life, joy, and love. Even our Christian perspective of life on earth where the exclusiveness of marriage has a central place is not adequate to explain the new quality of life in heaven, which is not like our experiences on earth, but more like the experiences of angels in heaven. Well, then that leads to the question, then what do we know about angels and what are they like? The truth is, we don't know a ton about angels, okay, because they're not the main characters in God's redemption story. They're the servants. They're the backstage crew of a play, if you will. They're the roadies of a rock band, if you will. They were created to serve God behind the scenes, whereas we were created to fellowship and dine and fellowship with God. We also know that angels have direct access to God's presence and direct access to his knowledge. Based on this passage, the angels as spiritual beings have no need to reproduce and the exclusiveness and relational commitment as in a marriage will no longer apply in the resurrection. But most of what we do know about angels from the Bible is limited, and we have to recognize that. This highly compressed response Jesus gave regarding uh, marriages in the resurrection is grounded in the theology of angels, which is limited, and we must take it by faith. This may uh, leave many of you less than satisfied when it comes to how you will relate to your spouse in heaven. But let me assure you, let me assure you, heaven will be a place of pure bliss. You will spend eternity in the presence of the source of, of joy, 
And everything and every experience that is good and pleasurable is from God. If God has planned to make our resurrection life with him far better and different than this life on earth, how much more will we enjoy our eternal life with him in heaven? And how much more deeper will our relationships be with Jesus and with one another in heaven than what we experience here on earth? We cannot evaluate the unknown pleasures of heaven in terms of life on earth. To do so is to fail to know the power of God. Jesus rebuked the Sadducees there by first correcting their misunderstanding of the power of of God in the resurrection. He then corrects their error of not knowing the scripture. He takes them back to the burning bush with Moses and that is found in the Torah, which they accepted as authority. And here we find God's relationship with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In verses 26 and 27, we read this. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. What we see here is that God didn't make his promise to the dead, but he made it to the living. In other words, these patriarchs that that may have died are still alive with God. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead and don't exist anymore, then God's promises only last for the duration of their lives, which would make his promises limited and unfulfilled, right? But instead, through God's call to a relationship with him, they are alive in his presence. They're not dead and gone forever. No, God did not make promises to the dead, but instead, he made promises to those who will live on forever through a divine relationship with him. The resurrection is a guaranteed promise of God that those who will enter into a right relationship with him will rise again according to the scripture by the power of God. The ultimate answer to the Sadducees' question on the resurrection will be showcased not by Jesus' words, but by his empty tomb. He is a teacher who knows the scriptures to answer questions about the resurrection, but he himself is the resurrection and the life eternal. So what can we take away from this passage, and how can we apply it in our lives? We can learn from the mistakes of the Sadducees. They didn't know the scriptures, which is the word of God. And this led to many theological errors, including not believing in the power of God. Church, this is true for us too. If we do not regularly read God's word and hear from him, we will be like Pluto and wander off the path of God's truth. When we do not know his word, it will lead to many theological errors about who we are, who God is, and where we are going. The gospel of Jesus is the purpose for which we must live and the hope that this world needs. The gospel uh, is something that we must know. But if we don't know the word of God, How can you explain the gospel to others? How can you expect someone to tell you about a book if he has never read it himself? 
When your friend or a family member or a coworker is looking for hope from the death of a loved one or the news of cancer, you must give them Jesus. He is the only way. He is the only truth and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through Jesus. You must be bold and you must tell them of the hope of the eternity in Christ since it may be the last conversation that they may have with you. And be able to do that well, you must know your Bible. Now hear me well. I'm not saying that you have to be a doctor of divinity or be a Hebrew scholar or a Greek scholar. But you need to know where to turn in order to give a strong, reasoned defense of the gospel. And it begins with your reading it or listening to it and even memorizing it regularly. And I say daily. The Bibles you have in front of you today is the God-breathed written word given to us for our edification. All the books in its entirety and every word contained in it in the 66 books of the Bible were written by the writers of the books under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is what that means. It means that what you have in your Bible is a trustworthy word of God. And you must read it, know it. The Old Testament books were the books that Jesus read, and the New Testament writings have been approved with a stamp of approval by the apostles. As believers who are called to share the gospel hope with the lost, you must know the basic Christian doctrines that are given to us in the Bible. Who is God? What is sin? How are we saved in Christ? What is the church? What is the Bible? We must be able to give a response to these simple questions just to name a few categories. One of the things that I ask uh, in our baptism class uh, for, for people under 18 is to memorize certain of these catechisms that talk about who God is, that God is the creator of everyone and everything. What is sin? Uh, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world that he created, not being or doing what he requires of his law. These are simple doctrines that are helpful for us to know in order to give a defense of the gospel. We must know the scripture so that we can grow deeper in our relationship with God and to be able to share the power of the gospel with others as we give hope to the lost world. When we do not know the scriptures like the Sadducees, it will lead to dangerous theological errors. And if you don't know the Bible well, you may end up giving people false hope. One of the most important trainings that we conducted uh, in the army, uh, in the infantry, was medical training. And I remember very clearly as we were being instructed by the medical team that was training us that when we were dealing with a casualty that is bleeding out and has minutes uh, to live, uh, one of the things that you're going to naturally want to do is say things like, everything's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. This is a natural response of giving false hope. But they said, you must not do this. Because when you say that, when you give them false hope, they may actually believe you and relax and go into unconsciousness and die. In other words, your false hope could lead them to their death. Instead, what they need to hear is the truth. You're bleeding out, and we're going to stop the bleeding and get you off the battlefield, but you need to stay with us. Stay conscious and fight for your life 
and fight for us and stay. In the same way, there are people that are all around us whose souls are bleeding out and their eternal death is knocking on their doors. Everyone from young to old, from the healthy to the terminally ill, are all living on borrowed time. We're all dying souls, living in a world of suffering and a a brokenness. It is a fallen world, one filled with corruption and hopelessness. From the moment we took our first breath in this life, it's only a matter of time before we breathe our last. And to most people, their eternal destiny is unknown. And they fear their unknown and what is about to unfold before them. And the Bible is very clear that all sinners are destined to be separated from God in a conscious eternal place of punishment called hell. But praise be to God the Father who gave us his only Son to suffer in our stead for our sin that by faith in Christ, in the Son, we too will be raised to everlasting life with him forever by the power of the Holy Spirit that is in us. What the dying world desperately needs is that gospel hope. And this hope is not a pie-in-the-sky hope that is unattainable, but hope that is grounded in the reality of the bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus. That, my brothers and sisters, is the greatest hope that we have in this temporary life. And this life of suffering and this world of corruption and our death in it will not have the final say. But we will rise again with Jesus where we will forever be with him who loves us and who gave himself up for us. So how can we share this truth? How can we share this truth? First, we must pray that God will bring us opportunities for us to share the gospel truth. I have found that when we pray that prayer, that God is eager to answer that prayer and the opportunities will come. He will give those opportunities to share Christ. Second, you must be on the lookout for low-hanging fruit. What I mean by that is I found that at least in my life, that there are places where people are eagerly seeking the gospel. There are people that are desperate to hear Christ in funerals, in prisons, in combat zones, in professional athletic uh, stadiums where death is imminent, where there is no hope. In places like these, oh, people are desperate to hear about Jesus. They want the gospel. Yes, we can pray for the chaplains who, who are at work there and are doing a good work of sharing and preaching the gospels, but these people are not far from you. You, need, you know these people in your lives, in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods. We recently had a group of men go and evangelize to prisoners in prison. And there's a new ministry called Brand 316, started by a dear friend, David Phillip, who ministers to inmates coming out of prisons here in Wichita. And there are opportunities to get involved there if you want to see life-changing transformations. Third, don't neglect the built-in network and relationships that are in your lives. This may be your coworkers, your neighbors, and your family members. For you young mothers, there are other young mothers in your neighborhood whose lives you can reach through their kids. 
A ministry of hospitality at your home is an easy way to build gospel bridges to the families in your neighborhood and in your network. Invite them into your homes. Feed them hot dogs. Cost a few cents. And let them see you teaching your kids uh, doing devotionals. Let them see you having conversations about homosexuality and what the Bible says. Let them see you having these conversations and allow them to watch you as you walk by faith with Jesus. And as I have said before, there are literally many out there who are dying in their deathbeds or through their terminal illness. And your conversation with these people must be gentle, yet firm, as you speak the truth. Because the only truth they may hear is the gospel conversation you have with them, where you must courageously share with them and tell them about their maker, who they're going to meet. They need to know who Jesus is. You may be tempted to give them false hope and tell them that everything's going to be okay, but give them Jesus. They need the hope of the resurrection. If the Lord wills, he will even give you the opportunity to lead them to Christ. You can be direct and ask, do you know where you're headed after death? Do you know your maker? And if they do not, you can say, well, may I share with you about what Jesus has done for me and the hope of the resurrection that is found in Jesus Christ. The resurrection hope is central to the Christian faith. And it is the greatest hope a dying soul needs. May we be a people who know the scriptures and the power of God through a personal relationship with Jesus. He is not a God of the dead, but he is a God of the living. And let us live with peace that surpasses all understanding, even through our suffering, because of the hope of our resurrection with Jesus. May this hope not be bottled up and held just within us. But let us boldly proclaim it to the world that is desperately looking for this hope. Because the greatest hope a dying soul needs is the reality of the resurrection life with Christ.